Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast coming to you today from SubChina's fourth annual women's conference. I am Kaiser Guo at home here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee is TikTok viral megastar Jeremy Goldcorn, whose instructional hip hop dance videos have been watched an incredible 58 billion times. Jeremy, what an honor. And would you please greet the people? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Kaiser. I got a call from Mike Pompeo and uh, I'm not allowed to do them anymore. <laughs> oh, no. I'm so... I'm, That's the end of my TikTok career. Ah, It's just broken my heart. Uh, Today we are joined by Susan Shirk, who probably needs no introduction at all to our listeners. Susan served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific during Bill Clinton's second term. She's the author of the excellent book, China, Fragile Superpower, and is uh, Chair and Research Professor of the 21st Century China Center at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. She's somebody with the experience, the perspective, the wisdom to see the big picture on China's domestic politics, as well as its troubled relationship with the U.S., and those are the things that we're going to be asking her about today. Susan Shirk, welcome back to Seneca. Well, thanks. It's great to be here with uh, you, Kaiser and Jeremy, and, uh, you know, you definitely have a real special status in this organization as the only men participating. I hope you learned a lot this morning. We sure have. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we have uh, had this honor, actually, I think since the first conference of, I think, being the only man ever allowed on the stage. So uh, thanks to our CEO, Anlar, for that. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but let's jump right into our topic today. Uh, all summer long, we have seen the Trump administration pull out all the stops and come up with near daily announcements, or you could call them provocations uh, of Beijing, involving many different departments uh, or agencies from the Department of Justice to the State Department, Department of Defense to Commerce. Uh, Susan, is it your sense that this is deliberate and coordinated, or is it just that Trump has taken his foot off the brakes and the different departments are just doing what they've always wanted to do with China? Well, uh, Jeremy, I do think uh, this approach to whacking China on every policy front, every continent, uh, what I think of as a kind of sledgehammer approach of um, pushing back uh, very openly and very strongly, often in ways that are detrimental to our own interests and to our own open society and market economy, it it's definitely coordinated. And it, I think, is highly counterproductive. You have to ask the question, what has it actually accomplished? Has it actually resulted in any significant change in the Chinese policies, behavior, practices that we find so um, negative from our perspective and the perspective of other people in the world. I don't think it's accomplished anything. So I I certainly agree that it's coordinated, uh, and I certainly agree that it hasn't been productive, but what was it intended to do? Uh, There's clearly some intent behind this. Is this to wag the dog and to sort of provoke a a kind of an event ahead of November? Is it meant to distract from the the, the bungling of of the COVID-19 response here in this country? Is it just a scorched earth policy to make it impossible for Biden and his team to reverse any of this or to uh, affect a reset? What do you think? Well, I think 
it's really been directed primarily from the White House um, and that it began before COVID and it began before the need of President Trump to defend himself from criticism over his own handling of the epidemic. So what's it about? It's about uh, pushing back. Uh, basically, the hawks in the administration, I think, have won the internal debate, and they are working to try to lock in a an adversarial approach to try to uh, sustain American power, American leadership. Uh, you know, the Chinese side for years has said, oh, your American policy is just containment. I always argued that was not the case, really. And it wasn't up until the Trump administration. But now I'd have to acknowledge that what we have is an actual containment policy. So mm. people have uh, concluded that China can't be trusted that it is acting in ways that are dangerous to the United States as well as other countries. And they're determined to push back. And as you say, I think part of the strategy is to lock in a kind of Cold War relationship, which will be difficult for the next administration to reverse. But I think it's important to point out that you know, China did bring a lot of this on itself, and that the backlash and this um, approach is not is not limited to the United States. You know, we see a strong reaction and strong actions to limit and protect from China's actions in Europe in Australia, in Japan, in Korea, in India. So it, it's much broader than just the United States. Hmm. Hmm. Susan, what have you made of China's response uh, to all of this action from the Trump administration? And what do you think that tells us about what Beijing is thinking, or what Xi Jinping is thinking, perhaps? Well, I watch this very carefully, because... Uh, while I do just a bit getting ahead of ourselves, I do expect that the Biden administration will take a different, somewhat different approach to this. Um, the question that's always in my mind is, is Xi Jinping a pragmatic leader who is responsive to the costs that China is experiencing as a result of this backlash against his policies and actions? And is he therefore willing to make some of the compromises that will be necessary to reassure us, reassure people in other countries that China's intentions are benign and friendly and we can actually work together uh, in some important areas and that we won't blow one another up? So uh, I'm watching this all the time, and I think that if you look at Wang Yi's recent trip to Europe, it's really a very sad example of how it was designed to reassure the Europeans 
and try to put a wedge between Europe and the United States. But it really backfired because Wang Yi, the foreign minister and state counselor, who is, I know him, and he's a very smart, pragmatic diplomat. But in this current political environment in China, he felt that he had to go and threaten the Norwegians not to uh, give another Nobel Prize to democracy movement in Hong Kong the way they did to Liu Xiaobo. So to make threatening remarks, similarly with the Czechs, had to threaten the Czech government for their kind of initiative, diplomatic initiative with Taiwan. So these threatening statements and the use of economic coercion to pressure other countries to take China's political line is highly counterproductive for them. And it's not a good sign that they weren't able to find real concrete ways of reassuring the Europeans or us and that they got caught up in this whole effort to threaten and pressure other countries to follow Beijing's line on what are basically domestic political issues in China. Oh, Susan, you, you say um, that Wang Yi is a, is a smart guy. So, I mean, would you say his threatening behavior, is this caused by a need you know, to, to perform for Xi Jinping, to, to, to be a tough guy, a wolf warrior, to impress Xi or you know, the rest of the political establishment in China? Or has Beijing become so sort of arrogant about its position on the world stage that he actually thought this was a good idea? Oh, no, I, I'm sure he didn't think it was a good idea diplomatically. I'm, and I believe that the domestic politics of the situation were the main explanation because people in China are competing to prove how loyal they are to Xi Jinping and to follow his line. So you get this kind of bandwagoning effect on the concentrated power of Xi Jinping. I mean, it has a lot of very perverse uh, consequences for Chinese policymaking process. It has, first of all, the echo chamber effect of Xi Jinping and others in his close circle probably do start believing some of their own propaganda. And then secondly, in order to advance in the system and protect yourself from the kinds of damage to your political career, your own political and career security that Xi Jinping might be able to uh, threaten and has threatened for many high-level leaders, you really have to show that you are 200 percent on board with his approach. Yeah, Susan, I would certainly agree with you that some of China's diplomatic initiatives, uh, especially very recently, Wang Yi's trip to Europe is, is the biggest example of that, have have backfired. And it's really a pity because I think earlier in the summer, we were seeing a pretty measured response to a lot of this lunacy coming out of D.C. But in, in one sense, Trump's policies, the Trump administration's uh, assault, this sledgehammer approach that you've you've described, has backfired as well in that 
Uh, you've argued, and I've heard you argue this before, that it's been beneficial to Xi Jinping, who has used it to buttress his own legitimacy to maybe uh, cement the bond, not only between uh, the party and society more broadly, but also maybe within his the his own leadership, where, as you just suggested, where they've sort of circled the wagons. Uh, some people in China have taken to calling Trump Chuanjianguo, uh, which we might translate as, you know, make China great again, Trump. Uh, can can you expand on this idea of yours a bit? Well, yes. Uh, I believe that the Trump administration policy is such a signal, a strong, credible signal of unmitigating hostility. We have shown no effort to really negotiate issues that are priority issues. There's very little communication. We just whack them. And it's costly to ourselves. So that makes it a credible signal because we're willing to pay costs to show how hostile we are. So when you have an external enemy, and we've kind of made ourselves into China's enemy, when you have an external enemy, then people rally around the leader. People rally around the leader in any kind of disaster or emergency like COVID anyway. So all leaders get a boost from hurricanes, uh, Katrina, whatever it is, no matter how well or poorly they handle the emergency. Uh, it's striking how little boost Donald Trump got compared to other leaders. In China, Xi Jinping got a huge boost. And the attacks from the United States the strong pressure and criticism um, has definitely uh, made even the most liberal voices have pretty much disappeared. Um, and everyone's a nationalist now. You have to be. You have to rally around China when it's being attacked the way it is. And then, of course, there are really important policy, long-term policy implications of the United States kind of losing the friendly feelings of Chinese people toward the United States. That's really, we're going to be trying to fix that and um, change that over a very long period of time. Let me, let me follow up on what you just said. I think that in, in past crises, uh, for example, after 99 with the embassy bombing, where things looked so grim, there were deep wells of pro-American sentiment still there to be tapped. And, and the rebound from that was was remarkably fast. I, I was there. I felt it. What about now? Have we exhausted those wells? Excuse me. I have to interrupt and say that it's really distressing to me that still probably, you know, so many people in China still believe that the United States purposefully bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, which yeah, is yeah. an episode that I was involved in during the Clinton administration. And I know that that's wrong. And it's just so hard for me to recognize. And it actually changed Chinese policies a lot. I mean, a yeah. lot of the buildup in military capabilities came then, not just Taiwan issues, but from that incident. So anyway, uh, the wells of friendly feelings for the United States there are a lot of people in China who still have warm feelings for the United States and for the West. Yeah. Obviously, 
so many people want to send their kids abroad to school, right? I mean, uh, and it's that's very a big problem that it's now so difficult for them to send their uh, students to the United States to study. But, you know, and people, where do they buy their houses? It, most people, if they have the resources and they have the choice, they really like to have one leg in the United States with their family, their wives, uh, their real estate holdings, whatever. I do believe that if we elect President Joe Biden, that not just Chinese, but people in other countries around the world where the Trump administration has treated them so badly, I think they'll kind of forgive us you know, and see, so. and see it as an anomaly that, you know, and they'll watch very carefully to see how do we try to, you know, to get back to a an American leadership and an American society, which they can really respect again. Uh, <laughs> Susan... Do you have a sense, I mean, um, bearing in mind uh, the, that everybody needs to be a nationalist, as you put it, and, and nobody can afford to go against Xi Jinping, is there nonetheless any evidence of any fissures in the Central Committee, the Politburo, Standing Committee, the, the whole Politburo, about uh, foreign policy, particularly with regards to the United States? Are there people who, who are calling for a little more moderation, in other words? Well, I mean, not at the political level. I don't see any signs among people who are Central Committee members or Politburo or Standing Committee members. Um, but certainly, uh, in all the many dialogues that we've been having with Chinese colleagues, academics, um, business people, there is, I think, a pretty good understanding that uh, Beijing has a serious problem. They're confronted by a serious problem internationally, not just in the United States, and that they have the wolf warrior diplomacy has definitely made matters worse. So, you know, I do think there are efforts to uh, to impose greater restraint. But, you know, um, uh, last week, the UC San Diego Forum on U.S.-China Relations met. And this is really the only elite forum focused entirely on how the United States should manage its relations with China. I, I chair it with Kurt Campbell and Steve Hadley. And there was, you know, such lively discussion among Americans, almost entirely Americans, about, you know, how what we should be doing, what's going on in China, how can we understand China better? And one of my Chinese-American colleagues who participated in this, he said, you know, I wish there were a way to have something similar in China, where Chinese leaders from various walks of life could talk about America because the Chinese political leadership really doesn't have a very good understanding of how America works or how the West, Western countries work. And they, 
certainly have very poor ability to communicate well with the United States and with the West. And yet, this kind of advisory discussion, which used to go on under Jiang Zemin and in the first term, at least, of Hu Jintao, really doesn't go on anymore inside China. Hmm. Yeah, that is a real pity. Uh, what's your sense of how, how much attention uh, a potential Biden administration would pay to initiatives like this, would be listening uh, to groups like yours in the discussions that you've been having? And, and should things go poorly for Trump in November 3rd, as I sincerely hope they do, uh, what do you think they might do? What are some of the, in other words, the, the kind of uh, doable repairs that you think the next administration is looking like it will prioritize? Well, I think it will, first of all, try to open up lines of communication and to identify some priority areas, many of them related to China's economic policies, as well as the most egregious uh, issues related to human rights, like Xinjiang and Hong Kong, that... Uh, to have negotiations and to see if we can make some progress in, and China, the Chinese side, of course, uh, I hope will be able to take advantage of this new opportunity and to do things, not just change the rhetoric a little bit, but to actually take actions. For example, in opening up sectors to foreign firms and to treating foreign firms more on a level playing field in China. You know, uh, they've lost the support of the business communities, not just in the United States, as well as in other countries. So bringing that back would be incredibly important for changing the political tone of the relationship. So communications and negotiations, first of all. Mm hmm but if the U.S. leads with these things, if it leads with human rights and if it leads with uh, structural uh, changes that need to happen in the Chinese economy, that hardly seems like it would it would uh, signal an atmospheric change. I mean, what about things that they would try to do to repair some of the more uh, over-the-top policies that we've seen just come out this summer? Would they, for example, reopen uh, the Houston consulate? Would the Biden administration uh, take the heat off of some of the Chinese technology companies, things like that. No, I, I, I really don't have a view about specific operational changes that would be made, but I think the approach would be more pragmatic, uh, more uh, making an effort to actually make progress on issues. Now, it doesn't mean that they won't threaten or actually use whatever pressure we have to achieve that. I'm not saying, I don't think they'll use the tariff tool other than uh, things that are U.S. law or WTO, you know, uh, as we did in the past. I don't think they'll, but it is an interesting question. My husband and I had a discussion at the dinner table last night about lifting tariffs. You know, I think the Biden administration has very carefully said that it's not committing when they will lift tariffs. And certainly they're going to want to see some movement on the Chinese side that would justify doing that. 
but I don't think they're going to use that kind of approach, which of course ends up hurting United States uh, consumers and manufacturers and retailers um, very much. It really has hurt us as much or more than it hurts the Chinese side, especially our farmers, right? Absolutely. Susan, if I may go back to the question of human rights, uh, Xinjiang, uh, internment camps, and, and uh, Hong Kong, do you think there's any chance of Beijing budging on these issues? Because the way it seems to me is that none of the external pressure has made a difference, and Beijing seems committed to its path, both in Hong Kong and also in dealing with all of its minority populations. You know, uh, Mongolia now, uh, there's a little fire there because of attempts to reduce Mongolian language instruction in schools. So, yeah, is there any hope for Beijing softening up on any of these issues? You know, based on my own experience in government more than 20 years ago, we made great progress through the use of carrots and sticks and negotiation on economic issues, on non-proliferation. But when it came to human rights, I really have to conclude, and this was so frustrating, that nothing we did really improved the human rights situation in China. You know, we would set the bar so low in a negotiated effort to say, you know, if you just allow in the International Red Cross into your prison, I mean, things that really look to us easy to do, and yet the Chinese side, even under Jiang Zemin at that time, refused to do it. So I don't have a lot of optimism about issues related to human rights because they're too bound up in the insecurity that China's party leaders feel. And they are, you know, constantly worried about how long they can continue to rule this quite vibrant and open market economy and increasingly middle class society. So they see threats to their uh, power, to their rule, you know, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and that's why I've long argued that reducing the, the perception of threat is a good way to begin. Uh, in any case, I, I'm curious, Susan, where do you stand on the question uh, a lot of people have been talking about on who Beijing wants to win in November? I mean, there's no clear consensus. Uh, 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 I have no opinion of this, and I think it's purely <laughs> speculative. I'm really tired of this discussion because none yeah. of us know, and we're just... We don't know. You know, but there are still, despite the fact that, yeah, I mean, knowing that we don't know, if they don't have a clear favorite, or if, I mean, it, it's clearly, we don't we don't know, it, it, it seems unlikely that they would try to meddle then. I mean, how seriously do you take the suggestions that, that Beijing would try to influence the outcome of this election? Uh, well, I I don't take it very seriously, and I think it's an attempt to deflect attention away from the Russian efforts, frankly. Okay, yeah, no, that's 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 good. Um, you know, I think at this point we all recognize that things are not going to go back to where they were in the Obama presidency, irrespective of what happens in November. Uh, we were pretty clear on that when we spoke back in in December of 2019 uh, when you were last on the show. Uh, but that was again before things like. Um, or this, this major nosedive, it was before Hong Kong and the national security law. Uh, 
I think your instincts and those of most of us listening uh, are that uh, we do need to manage the competition, the inevitable competition, to erect some guardrails. Uh, what, practically speaking, are some examples of workable guardrails that the U.S. and China might be able to put in place? Well, um, you know, there are a lot of crisis prevention and crisis management confidence-building measures on the security side that we could undertake, much as we did with the Soviet Union. You know, uh, even though the U.S.-China Cold War II is very different from the U.S.-Soviet Cold War I because of the economic interdependence, the social interdependence, and the fact that China is a much more successful country than the Soviet Union was. Although, again, you go back and look at things, you know, it's easy to underestimate what the Soviet Union was doing. Remember Sputnik and other accomplishments. But I think there are lessons from the first Cold War that we can apply, and a lot of them are on crisis management. The beginnings of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War were much more dangerous the two sides didn't have very good communication. They didn't understand one another's red lines. And then over time, they gradually, often not through negotiation, but through tacit signaling, stabilized the relationship. So we ended up not blowing one another up. So I think that kind of stabilization is a very, a very high priority. And the other thing is to try to sustain the civil society ties as best we can, because these connections between our societies are super important. And, you know, we've, we all value them so much. And we should resist efforts by either government to put barriers in the way. How worried should we be, Susan, about escalations with respect to Taiwan? Um, you're someone with the ability to put yourself in the shoes of the Chinese leadership and understand what factors are feeding into their decision-making processes. Uh, there have not been many times when that ability is more urgently needed than now. Do you think you could walk us through the factors you see tugging Xi Jinping in different directions? and what the vector sum of all those forces ends up being for him. I, I'm talking about everything from what Xi Jinping makes of the Trump administration's recent moves and, and rhetoric to the pure military calculations. Well, yes, this uh, Taiwan issue is front and center again, especially after Hong Kong, uh, because the one country, two systems approach that... Beijing has promoted for Hong Kong and then for Taiwan, you know, I think it's completely undercut by what you see is basically Beijing's police state occupation of Hong Kong now. So nobody believes and the re and what's happened after the national security law I think quite predictably, they have enforced it and imposed it in many different areas, not just in protest activity, but education, 
media. So it's really uh, a transformation of the open society, the two systems idea that Hong Kong was going to be allowed to have a different system. So that really changes the domestic politics in Taiwan, I think, in that it's very difficult for any sort of pro-unification voices in Taiwan. Uh, and it kind of moves the Taiwan debate about cross-strait ties over to more, how are we really going to defend ourselves from a threatening China? And in the United States, in the discussions I've been part of, people really are concerned that Taiwan's ability to deter and defend itself militarily has really eroded as Beijing has built up its capabilities. And because there's a great uncertainty about whether or not Xi Jinping is impatient to solve this problem quickly. You know, many people in China kind of had the notion that the reason for a third term uh, is to reunify Taiwan. Do you think that's that's valid? Do you think that that's... Really no, I don't. I don't think that's... I. You know, I think like other autocrats or like political leaders everywhere, they all feel they're indispensable and they would like to stay in power as long as they could. Um, so I don't think that's the reason, but it makes us, uh, we're very uncertain about what Xi Jinping's intentions are vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. So the question to the next administration is, what is the best approach to strengthen deterrence um, and to help Taiwan defend itself uh, before the United States gets there. Uh, and, you know, Richard Haas has made this suggestion that we should make an explicit commitment, like a, a security treaty, essentially, that we will defend Taiwan if Beijing uses force. I don't think that's the best or the only way to do that. I think that's really a very extreme and provocative action, and it would make it more difficult for Beijing not to act more aggressively toward Taiwan. So I don't think that's the best solution, and I think many other China experts agree with that. Um, but then the question is, what do we do uh, to help Taiwan protect itself and to prevent Beijing from not just using force, but maybe using other forms of economic statecraft, many of which has already happened, to pressure Taiwan until it just falls into Beijing's lap like a ripe plum. Susan, I wish we had more time. There's still so much we'd like to talk to you about, but uh, I'm being told that we need to wrap up. Uh, let's Go quickly to recommendations. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, and I, I want to have you back on the program as soon as possible. Uh, thanks to the organizers of the SubChina Women's Conference. Uh, and as always, it's just been fantastic speaking with you. Uh, recommendations. Jeremy, go quick. 
<clears throat> Quickly, uh, you know, I complained about the postal service here in Nashville recently as a sign that America's really falling apart. Uh, two articles on the similar theme, an opinion piece in the New York Times by Fahad Manju, who's a columnist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doomsday prepping for the end of democracy. Even if Trump loses, there's no guarantee we'll make it to the other side, he says. <laughs> and another article, which is on Medium by uh, a fellow named Umar Haq, Uh, We don't know how to warn you any harder. America is dying. We survivors of authoritarianism have a message America needs to hear. This is exactly how it happens, and it's happening here. Those two articles, I think, are worth reading. But for me, the the real sign was the post failing. (laughs) Gosh, okay. Uh, Really cheery stuff. (laughs) Just to cheer you up. Yeah, yeah. Susan, what do you have for us? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, what I've been reading... Uh, to gain a better understanding of Black Lives Matter and the uh, crisis in race relations in the United States, um, instead of the more the books about how to be an anti-racist, which I have to say don't really help me that much, I have been reading uh, two books, Isabel Wilkerson's a uh, fabulous book called The Warmth of Other Suns about the yeah, migration of African Americans from the South to Northern cities. And there's another book, which is a memoir by Sarah Brooms called The Yellow House. I think it won the 2019 National Book Award about a hundred years of a New Orleans East African American family. So in terms of building greater empathy for uh, how America looks from the standpoint of African Americans. I found these books to be great, very human, and helped me a lot. And I enjoyed them. Brilliant. Both excellent, excellent suggestions. Uh, I've got a couple of articles from The New Yorker I want to recommend. One is Joshua Yaffa. He has a piece titled, Is Russian Meddling as Dangerous as We Think?, uh, which doesn't seek to deny meddling efforts, but just raises the important point that we also lose when we overreact and we you know, we make Russia 10 feet tall and see ourselves as this helpless victim. Um, there are many lessons here, I think, for how we need to be careful not to exaggerate China's ability to influence or to interfere. Uh, and I would point people to Susan's excellent uh, uh, response to the uh, the Hoover Institute study on, on interference on Chinese uh, meddling in, in American politics. The other is a piece by our friend Jiang Fan. Uh, it's this heartbreaking, really beautifully written piece called How My Mother and I Became Chinese Propaganda. Uh, we plan to have Jiang on the on, on the show soon to talk about this story. It, it's really kind of a gut punch and it's beautifully written. Um, Susan, thanks once again. A, a warm thank you to all the people who've joined us from around the world. Jeremy, great to talk to you as usual. Susan, we'll talk again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts in the Seneca Network. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Take care. Hey, hey, hey.